Welcome to Cryptids of the Corn. Each week, Justin and Jay take a look at a topic in the crypto and paranormal world. They focus on the Midwest and Appalachia of the U.S., but sometimes they venture out. With everything from well-known monster sightings to one-off cryptids, live person interviews to actual fieldwork sneaking in some science lessons, there's sure to be something you'll enjoy. Please join us this episode of Cryptids of the Corn. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Crypt of the Corn Podcast. I am the great and powerful Mr. E. And I am the tantalizer taste buds, Jay. And today we have a special guest that has an amazing repertoire of, from cryptozoology to paranormal to geological. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm super excited because it's a she's another lake monster fan, and you don't get a lot of them. I'm a big, you guys at home know I'm a big lake monster person. But she's host of Into the Liminal Abyss Paranormal Podcast, owner of Squatch GQ Magazine, Cryptozoological Digest, Into the Liminal Abyss Paranormal Magazine, Dinosauria in Prehistoric uh, Life Magazine, Rock, or sorry, Rockhound and Prospector Magazine, author of Lake Monster and Odd, or Lake Monsters and Odd Creatures of the Great Lakes, and author of Mothman and Other Flying Creatures of the Midwest. She's been a teacher at Owens Community College in Perrysburg, Ohio, and Kellogg's Community College in Battle Creek, Michigan. She's taught both classes of paranormal history and cryptozoology of North America. Sheetan, we're so excited to have you. Well, hi, guys, and I am so excited to be on your show. And you're, you're right. I love talking about Lake Monsters. It's uh, one of my most requested presentations and mm-hmm. one that I feel like I'm very well researched in, um, particularly here in the Great Lakes. Um, those are, that's my, my habitat, my territory, my, uh, my uh, realm of knowledge. So uh, I am happy to be on the show and can't wait to talk Lake Monsters. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm super excited. We're definitely happy to have you. And we met you at the, uh, I think oh, for yeah. the first time at the Michigan Bigfoot Conference. And yes. uh, you gave the option to everyone that, you know, what topic <laughs> you went to talk about that day. You gave up four options. And when I heard the Lake Monsters as one of the options, I immediately looked over at Justin like, oh, that's the one. That yeah, yeah, I, I was screaming loudest. I know he wants that one. And that ended up being the one you pick, that everyone picked, yeah. I guess. And, and you know, it, it always fascinates me because when I, when I go to an event and they have not specified me, to me, okay, we want you to talk about Dogman or we want you to talk about lake monsters or mothman or i give the audience a a choice because what i have found is after a full day of hearing just about bigfoot people want to hear something different so i give them the option do you want to hear you know i usually give them an option of four and it always amazes me that lake monsters the one that i talk about so often is the one that everybody picks because they're like ooh. We want that, and it's always you know the majority vote of you know people <laughs> you know they want the lake monsters, and uh, so it's always you know people have an interest in it um, just as much as they do Bigfoot or Dogman, and I, I'm thrilled when people want to hear about the lake monsters, especially you know uh, the ones here in the Great Lakes area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was I think you're 100 percent right that like 
what didn't that conference? I think spe- speaker started at eight o'clock and didn't end till like shoot eight o'clock. So eight a.m. to eight p.m. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were the only non Bigfoot presenter, and it was very very refreshing. And don't get me wrong, I love all the big. We were obviously at a Bigfoot conference. We love Bigfoot and all the stuff. Yeah. But it's just nice, like you said, in the middle of it, to get a non-Bigfoot thing. Because we talk a lot about Bigfoot. But, uh, yeah, the Great Lakes region is one that has all kinds, myths, legends, folklore, especially with aquatic. I mean, we've talked about South Bay Bessie, you know, the Lake Erie Chomper, stuff like that. But there's, mm-hmm. there's, I would say, probably hundreds in the Great Lakes region. Of there, there We certainly have a diverse like, you know, category of different lake monsters. And I usually break it down into six different categories um, because that just makes it easier Mm -hmm. when you're, you're going through reports and, you know, I divide it up. You know, you've got your giant fish, you've got your giant turtles, you've got your sea serpents, Mm -hmm. you've got your amalgamations, which basically you could say water dragon, but, that it's mostly Native American legends that that category pertains to. And they have a lot of natural occurring elements like horns and like the head of a horse and, hmm. you know, seaweed and, and stuff like that um, as part of their description. And then you've got your prehistoric marine reptiles. That's my favorite category. And then we've got that sixth, you know, category that there's only one contender, but um, the merfolk or the merman of hmm. Lake Superior, the great. Manitou Nibinibis, um, the god of the lakes. He's definitely one of, you know, he's definitely one in my category. So, um, you know, there's just such a broad, you know, we even have a couple reports of uh, freshwater octopus in, in yeah. at least two different lakes, um, one being of Native American legend and one being from a gentleman who he fell off of his yacht and he felt something spongy wrap around his legs as he was trying to swim to the surface. Now, hmm. I don't want to credit that report, but seaweed can have yeah. a very similar effect. And we know there's a, there's a local lake by us that um, parts of it, you are not allowed to swim in because the, the seaweed is so uh, deep and so tall underwater that when you swim through it, it, tangles around you and people have drowned and um at least three people have drowned since um i've lived here which is all of my life in that lake because of the seaweed that's Mm. that's more of a common occurrence than people understand that you can get wrapped up in that stuff and it weakens you so much you drowned yeah yeah because it, it it's it's very flexible and very liquidy but it's a solid form and what happens is people go to try to swim through it and they get tangled up in it and it just holds them in place and if you can't get you know your water or you don't or your air and you don't have a knife or anything to cut it or there's nobody around to help you chances are you're going to drown in that seaweed hmm that sounds dangerous i never really thought about that though yeah, it it's is. It's scary. So, like I told you, I used to be a, a, a fishery biologist, stuff like that. We've been in some spots. I almost, uh, I got stuck in a sinkhole in the middle of a creek. That Ooh. The, it was only one foot of water, and I was all the way up to my armpits. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, there's stuff like that that occur, occurs, well, we wouldn't say cryptologically or paranormal, that can 
kill you relatively easy. Right, yeah. That is still these aquatic hazards that people don't think about. It's not just the monsters. Or right. The... Right, right. And that's that's where we get these 411 reports, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people go hiking or they go exploring and then we never see them again. And um, you, there's no explanation for what happened to them because the body's never found or evidence is never found. And you're like, wow, that's really spooky and, and uh, surreal. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question about your favorite category. Okay. So the marine, the giant marine reptiles, prehistoric marine reptiles. Yeah. Uh, so prehistorically, we've had basically three main groups, the mosasaurs, the ichthyosaurs, and the lyopleurodons, roughly. You know, there's a lot of small... Plesiosaurs. The plesiosaurs. Yeah. The and stuff like that. The Yeah. So there's a bunch of these groups. Now, we talk about a lot of species surviving extinctions into modern day. Do you think all, before we get into it all, do you think all those groups could have survived in modern day or do you think just a couple or? You know, it's, and I get asked that question a lot and it, it is plausible that they could have survived because we do still have alligators, crocodiles, caiman. Mm-hmm. We have, we still have whales and dolphins. We still have sharks. Yep. We still have fish species that date back to the prehistoric era. All of these species have not, except for whales, whales have changed a little bit. Um, All of them, if you were to go back to the Jurassic, to the Devonian, to any of these, you know, epochs, you know, that um, were prehistory and get a, you know, You'd have to have a really strong submarine uh, yeah. <laughs> um, to go into the waters. Um, and, you know, look at these animals. They have not changed much in appearance or design since those time periods. They have gotten smaller, mm-hmm. but that is makes them more thrivable in yeah. the modern world, you know, except for the whales. If you're smaller, then generally you can go undetected mm-hmm. and you can, you know, um, catch your prey easier. Not, you know, I mean, I know that we've got some big crocs, alligators and sharks and whales out there, but they, they downsized for a reason because you would think that these look like the Megalodon. Everybody assumes that it's a very fast shark. And in theory... It could be, but only for short bursts of speed. Mm. So when it does its ambush predator um, and it comes up from below and and hits a whale and bites off like the tail fluke or Mm -hmm. a flipper and lets it bleed to death, it has that fast burst of speed that, you know, gives it that momentum to freight train into its prey. But it's nothing compared to like the mako shark. That can go all out, you know, for, top speed yeah. for as long as it wants to hmm. to catch its prey, and it doesn't matter what it's chasing. It can usually, you know, it's usually faster and has more maneuverability. So, to me, I don't see any reason why your plesiosaurs or your mosasaurs or even ichthyosaurs, why those species should have died out and why you know they didn't adapt and compensate and move on into modern times i think if there were any out there i think that they would be 
they would have gone the same route as the other species that I just mentioned, and they gradually would have decreased in size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we certainly know, like in the fossil record, you've got anything where from like the six foot, six foot, you know, um, plesiosaurs all the way up to the elasmosaurs, you know, that were huge. Yeah. Uh, some bigger, and with your with your um, mosasaurs, essentially, you know, those were monitor lizards before they went and evolved into mosasaurs. But they very much took on the appearance of a modern day alligator and crocodile. That long mm. jaw and head shape and that tail. Um, the only thing that really changed was the flippers be, you know, um, on the mosasaur. Well, alligators and crocodiles have legs with, you know, uh, toes. Right. And so that that's quite an adaptation right there. But is it possible that the mosasaurs, you know, um, of the past are now the alligators and, and crocodiles and caimans of today mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, a, a bridging species being, you know, there in the fossil record and being the one who was like, okay, We've had enough of being on water. Now we want to do land and water. We want to be kind of cool and special, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna branch out that way. So you know, it's interesting how things evolve and adapt to their surroundings and their environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really. I I think a lot of people don't realize that with like, bef- you know, before the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. Like stuff like uh, Sarcosuchus, Dinosuchus, these giant crocodiles. Yeah. Even though a saltwater crocodile today still gets 20 feet and, you know, a couple thousand pounds, you had Dinosuchus that got, you know, 50 feet in 10,000 pounds. Yeah. You know, it was eating dinosaurs. Literally. Oh, yeah. So I, I, if a Mosasaur did make it today or any of that group, I think it would follow those lines. I agree with you that it would follow the same kind of guidelines. You get small for a bit to survive, you know, less calorie needs. You don't, you know, right. after a cataclysm, you don't have to eat as much. And right. I think mosasaurs definitely, out of all those groups, I think mosasaurs probably had the best likelihood in my mind of being able to do that. You know, just because they're they're so similar to their modern lizard ancestors, like you said, crocodilians. You know, I I do think they could probably withhold if you want to believe that how the cataclysm happened. That's why they think crocodiles survived so well, or those smaller crocodiles, is because they may, you know, sometimes only need to eat once or twice a year. Right, and so right. if there's food shortage and you only have to eat twice a year, you do a lot better than somebody that has to eat every other day. Right, and you know if if your if your energy sources are an occasional meal and sunlight, then mm-hmm. hey, you know you're you're going to do pretty good because you only have to occasionally catch that fish or a mammal or another reptile that's you know uh, stupid enough to come close to you <laughs> uh, and that you can snap up. Um, and that's why, you know, they have been so successful, um, in surviving to this, you know, date and time. And when you look at how, um, diversified the crocodilians are and you've got, you know, that the broad snouted alligator Mm -hmm. to, you know, the more wedge head of the, the crocodile, but the caimans have a, a specialized head. The mm-hmm. gharials have a gharials really are crazy looking. Head. Yeah, those are those are one of my favorites, just because they are so unique and 
um, just you know different than what what you usually see. And there's there's variations you know all around the world. Um, anywhere that has the crocodilians, you know that you know that genetic pocket of you know species, they're all very interesting. And the um, you know the variants that you get, like with American crocodiles, we have the white. We have the regular, and then we have the melanistic, mm-hmm. or you know the darker ones, and they're they're all you know very interesting species. Yeah, and just down the road they even have like uh, the well the Mexican the Mexican alligator. I think they're working. I think that's just a subspecies right now, but I think they're going to fully split it between the American alligator okay. and the Mexican alligator. But that's stuff like I used to work with people that split species all the time. To me, it's, it can get a little annoying. Because people argue back and forth so much, but what's maybe one of your more favorite from that category from the Great Lakes or a, a, an individual? So, so um, for for prehistoric marine reptiles, I will say that um, Lyle Pleurodon and Coronosaurus are my favorites for that category. Um, plesiosaurs, there there's just so many interesting ones and. Um, Elasmosaurus is certainly a very cool one, but as a group, I, I really love the plesiosaurs. Um, they, uh, to me, they, they are less destructive or, or, or vicious mm-hmm. than like the mosasaurs. Mosasaurs with that huge mouth, it's like, oh, they could eat anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, plesiosaurs, you know, I, a watermelon sized head and, and that's not going to do too much damage, except you know for a fish. Yeah, so. watermelon sized head on a school bus sized body. They're not. Yeah. They're not eating yeah. very big you prey. Know? A little less intimidating. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I would rather deal with that than you know, uh, Pronosaurus or Lyophoodon, you know, flying up next to you and being like, oh, yeah. we are screwed. Or the <laughs> head's a third of the body length. Yes. Uh, like like you said, Chronosaurus, Predator X, that kind of stuff, where they're they have yep. these massive heads, and I mean we can only. Th- theorize what they were doing with them but i think it's pretty clear when you have a giant head you know what you're well they you know the and, and a lot of people don't realize this but mosasaurs were actually you know one of their competitors was megs was the megalodon and they would regularly take each other on because we have found teeth from uh mosasaurs embedded into megalodon uh vertebrae oh wow and so you know that at certain points, and and you add in Liviaton, the uh, prehistoric, you know, orca into that mix, and it's like, yeah, I don't think I would if I would if those were still in existence, you know, when humans were, you know, starting. I don't think I would want to encounter one of those. The, I just, you know, I would rather stand on the shore. The, the sea used to. We're right, kind of right now. We're in a tame period of biological diversity in the sea or at least it kind of seems like seems we, like yeah it. we don't have as many of those giant massive predators but i would love to see that fight oh yeah that would be a, a heck of a thing that would blow shark week out of the water oh yeah or mosasaur yeah. week yeah, there we go <laughs> and and you know when you think about it it's when there are adverse effects in the natural world that species develop different behaviors, different biological advantages. And with the whaling that goes on, with the shark finning that goes on, 
I don't think that the human race realizes or appreciates the fact that if you kill off all of the submissive or, you know, gentler species like mm-hmm. the baleen whales, your predatory whales, your toothed whales will start to become very populated. And when those start doing a Moby Dick on the ships, mm-hmm. yeah. Then, then you've got a a bit of a a you know change in in the course of the fight, and I for one would love to see more of these ships get um, oh I damaged and sunk. I can't I, stand I, I, commercial I hate, whaling. I hate shark. I hate the the shark fitting, and I hate the the um you know killing whales for meat that they don't even eat. They they let it you know spoil. Uh, there's no need for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, you know, even dolphins. I, I, I am a strong, um, you know, uh, promoter of these are species that we should leave alone. They're yeah. there for a reason. We need them in the oceans. Stop killing them and stop damaging them. Right. Any any animal that has some kind of language like whales and dolphins do. I'm. I just whales have a special place in my heart. But the commercial whaling industry is horrible. The commercial fit or finning industry is horrible, like you're saying. For example, everybody at home, sharks on average kill about four people a year. And that's, you know, on a higher year. Uh, we kill around 800,000 sharks a year. Yeah, and, and you know, we're, we're talking about, uh, in general, a, a genus of animals that are very slow producing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. eventually... We're, we won't have any, you know, sharks in the oceans. And then we're going to see some really bad, you know, circumstances yeah. showing up because sharks are, are the cleaners of the ocean. Yeah. They take care of all that. So when, when carcasses start washing up on beaches that, you know, normally the sharks would eat and take care of and people, you know, governments have to spend the money to, take care of that when there's diseased or damaged fishes that are taking over the population and are no longer edible. Mm-hmm. Well, that's usually take care of that. And so I think, you know, the world, the world as a whole needs to make a statement and say, no, this is not acceptable anymore. And you're done. Stop it. You know, if, if we do catch you doing it, these are the repercussions and they're quite severe. I 100 percent there with you. The people off the ship and sink the ship. You know, <laughs> I'm that, right there with how, you. you know, and the people operating the ship, they go to prison for ten years. And it's... I'm talking a bad prison, like you know, <laughs> no country you know, club. The Black you know? Dolphin in Russia. That's a prison. That's one of the worst prisons in the world. There you go. You can send them to the Black Dolphin. You killed whales. You got to go to the Black Dolphin. I don't even know what that is. It's a horrible place. It sounds bad. It's the it's it's the worst prison in Russia. Yeah, that so sound that's good. saying something. When you're the worst prison oh, in Russia, it's that prison in Stranger Things season four. Oh my gosh, don't ruin it for me. Okay. So you kind of <laughs> mentioned another fan favorite, the Megalodon. I don't know what's yeah. what's your opinions on that. Do you think the Megalodon made it, or do you think we have another giant shark in the ocean? So I think that just like uh, you know the species that we were just talking about. I don't think the Meg is the giant that it used to be. And if they are still surviving in the oceans today, I think what we're looking at 
is probably what you know it, some people might mistake for a giant great white yes hmm. and because it would be of similar proportions similar looks and a lot of times when people you know unless you're a shark biologist and you're spending the whole day drawing these fish in you know towards your these sharks in towards your boat so you can document them tag them most people when they get that brief glimpse they immediately are like okay was it a great white was it a bull shark was it a hammerhead you know they 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 go with the details that stick out in their mind and then they look it up on google or in a book and they're like okay i'm pretty sure that's what i i yeah. thought mm -hmm. but if the if the markings you know sharks are are we have a lot of different species of shark but one thing you know stays the same they are colored on top and they are white on the bottom because that way they can blend in and hide from you know their prey items so if you're looking down at them from above water you don't see them until you know they move and or flash mm -hmm. this way or that if you're beneath them they blend right into the surface, you know yeah. the sky above because of that white belly and unless people you know everybody watches shark week but if you were to ask people to name 10 shark species they would probably be like limited after like five yeah i think they, you're right they, there they would tell, you know they would tell you you know hammerhead great white um lemon shark uh bull shark and then they would start um um, um right yeah uh, really stretching then shark, you know um and it's like okay you know there are hundreds of species of sharks mm -hmm. right some of them don't even look like sharks <laughs> right you know one of my one of my favorite species is the goblin shark yeah. oh yeah um and you know, which looks more like a swordfish than, than a shark, but it is a shark, you know, species. And so these are, you know, to me they're very interesting. You know, getting back to the megalodon. So I know that recently, a paleontologist they changed megalodon from a um, carcharodon to a otunus. Hmm. Meaning it's more of a mackerel type shark, but what if these, as these megalodons, you know, downsized, what if they started breeding with a similar type shark species and started pre producing a hybrid that we just take for granted nowadays is a modern species when it could be a part of a breeding population that, you know, goes back to a very ancient ancestor, which is the Meg. Hmm. And that could be where the Megalodons are today. Hmm. Yeah, I never... On... Yeah, I was going to say, on that thought, we're going to take a pause real quick, guys. We're having a little bit of an audio hiccup. Uh, so we'll be right back. Sorry about that, guys. We're back. Uh, audio technicalities and all that fun <laughs> stuff. Uh, we're professionals. But you were just talking about how Megalodon could have been hybridizing with a, a different species and making maybe a modern version that's a lot smaller and maybe more similar to a great white. 
And, and, you know, that is possible. We certainly see that um, with other species around the world. You know, people always say, oh, that's impossible. But it's not. You know, when you look at things that have hybridized, similar species can breed together. You know, we certainly know that wolf dogs are, you know, mm-hmm. very common. Um, beefalo, where they've bred, you know, buffalo to um, beef cattle. That is, you know, a well-known practice. Um, Ligers, you know, breeding lions and tigers. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's unheard of for two very similar shark species that are similar in size and descriptions to mate and produce an offspring. And it might, you know, not work every single time, but eventually... If the if the breeding population is going on, they will find a compatible pair and and they will breed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have have you ever seen the shark known as Deep Blue? Yes, I have. So that's what I was going to bring she's up to one of your awesome. hybrids. Yeah, she she's is awesome. Uh, I know I've talked to you about her a little bit, but everybody at home, Deep Blue is currently the largest great white shark that we have semi accurate measurements with. Uh, I think her one of her favorite stomping grounds is off of Hawaii, and there's always yeah. there's a big group of free divers that swim with her. Uh, she's a very unique animal, but hmm. there's some size variance estimates that you know depending on which crew you're looking at. You know, with the every, so at home they basically shoot two lasers out, and these lasers don't these are straight yeah. out, so they're always a foot apart. So when you take a picture of the shark, there's a point of reference. So there's a laser that's point to point that's a foot. So you can go back through the ah. film and yep. kind of guess. So Deep Blue at her shortest is probably 22 feet. And there's one estimate that puts her up at 25 feet. Wow. Yeah. And if there was a Megalodon hybrid, I think Deep Blue may be one of our better examples because she is just enormous. But Yeah, she, she's a big girl, but there's also... A couple of other big girls out in the Hawaii, um, Kauai girl, I, I believe is one of them. Um, th- there's a couple of big ones. And so when sharks uh, give birth, they usually give birth to a, a uh, whole, you know, litter of, of shark pups. And if that, the mother of that, you know, deep blue is also the mother of these other big sharks, that has to make you wonder if she is 100% great white or if she is a hybrid or if she, you know, allowed herself to be bred to a bigger species that, you know, is quite common for, you know, this bigger size. Um, and I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility that, you know, this one breeding produced this um, litter of super sharks that are bigger because right there in Hawaii, you do have, I think they're three of the biggest great whites, you know, on yeah. record are right there in Hawaii. Hmm. Deep blue, Kauai girl, and I think there's another one. Um, and, you know, sharks are very migratory. Where they were, you know, where they were, um, birth dad, that's usually, you know, the area that they will go back to. So it would not surprise me that all these bigger size sharks, if they weren't related or from the, right. the same litter. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. I could. I get behind that. Hmm. So that you're... that would be that that would be a very interesting um, scientific um, you know project to do is collect a DNA sample from each one of those gigantic sharks and see if they are genetically related. I'll have to look in. I know they have a pretty so why Deep Blue so popular is because she's been she's been heavily researched. Uh, I'm not sure about the other two. But I wonder if there has been a complete genome sequencing on her. I'd have to look into that later, because mm. that may be there may be oddballs in her genetic profile that nobody's talking about. Right, uh, right. Because that's a scary thought to think that if she's not one hundred percent great white, well, what did her mother breed to to produce right. that? And is that male shark still out there swimming and breeding with others to produce a bigger shark? Right. Hmm. No, no, that's a thought. Yeah, and that's something I never considered of megalodons almost not being being bred out of existence rather than just, you know, being extinct, so, you know, being destroyed or killed by, you know, whatever environments happened that wiped them out. We have that happening right now with blue whales. Hmm. Blue whales are breeding themselves to extinction because they're having so much trouble finding mates. They're breeding with fins and minkies. So they're still creating humongous fin and minky whales. But they're all smaller than blue whales. And I know, like, so, like, we talked about with the wh- uh, commercial whaling industry, that's kind of a big problem is because these hybrids aren't characteristically blue anymore. Hmm. And so they right. don't have protection. That's how they're getting around killing them is because they're, you know, these are trophy-sized minky and fin whales. But, no, they're actually young hybrids between these blue yeah. whales. And, and I wonder if, too, just from, like, whaling and things like that, um, destroying environments, destroying whole species of... You know, we'll just use whales and even sharks, for examples. What if that opens up the door, you know? Oh, that opens up the niche, yeah. Just for the niche, but but for hybrid, you know, animals oh, yeah. that would create these, you know, monsters you see in, like, a bunch of, like, you know, old maps and stuff, old tales and stuff. What if it was just something similar, you know, kind of situation happened to create these things? I don't and, and we know that, you know, when Megalodon was swimming in the waters and was in, you know, mass populace, the whale species were smaller. Mm. But after the megalodon population started to decrease, then your whales started getting bigger and bigger because they were able to live for longer. Mm-hmm. You know, your bigger your bigger specimens of the species will always breed to a bigger specimen of the species, yeah. which over time gives you these gigantic, you know, individuals of the species and they become the icons and as long as they can continue producing and breeding they will they will keep the population going but when they start to be slaughtered and killed off like you know within the human era Mm -hmm. um then we start to see a huge problem so i'm actually shocked that you know because whaling's been going on for um a couple hundred years Mm -hmm. that we haven't started to see a evolutionary, you know, change in the behavior and the design of whales to compensate for that. And it's quite possible that, you know, within our lifetimes, the end of the the giant whales is going to come. But then you have to wonder what replaces that. Right. And so we know that the giant whales, um, the uh, um, toothed whales, we know that they like to eat the giant squid. So 
are the giant squid going to become the next apex predator hmm. of the ocean? Bring back the kraken. And if they yeah. are, and if they are, what does that mean for mankind? Because you can, you know, having your boat attacked, you know, your your pleasure yacht attacked by a shark, they're they're usually going to go for the the propellers or the motor or something like mm-hmm. that. Sometimes they'll ram the ship, you know, or the boat if if they're mad. Whales, if you piss them off enough, they will ram your boat. But an octopus that can suction cup to the side of your boat, reach over the side, grab whoever they want and pull it over. Mm-hmm. No, we're not talking like Jules Verne, you know, mm-hmm. uh, fiction. We're talking this is very plausible that they could do that because squid and octopus are, are very, very intelligent. Yes. And if they you know, proceed that humans are on the menu, humans are on the menu. Right. Have you heard about the colony of giant Pacific octopus off of Oregon that are hunting eagles now? It would not surprise me. So what they're doing... It would not surprise me. They're catching fish, and they're using... They're hiding, and they're holding the fish at the surface with one tentacle, waving it like it's a struggling fish. And these eagles are smacking down, grabbing the fish. The octopus are latching onto them and pulling them down in eating the eagles. It's ridiculous. So you have a pop, like you're saying, very intelligent. And once they realize yep. a new food source, they're taking well advantage. These are octopus hunting, actively hunting eagles. Yep. That's uh, a very impressive thing to me. I, I've, I've, always, I've always thought that octopus and squid, even though they're well documented in the fossil record, I've always thought that those were very alien species because their adaptability with, you know, color morphing and, and, mm-hmm. and being able to cloak their mimicry, um, their different size variants, and their absolute intelligence. Um, even the smallest octopus is still smarter than most uh, human beings in its own way. Mm-hmm. So an animal that is able to figure out how to get out of its fish tank go across the floor, go into another fish tank, eat the fish in that fish tank, then return back to its own fish tank. Like it was never that That gone. That is a very intelligent, very calculating, very problem-solving species. And we have much to learn from them. Plus, their blood type is not anything else that is found on Earth. Copper-based, right? It, yeah, it's, Copper it's very alien to to um, I think, you know everything else on Earth. Until like mm-hmm. 1880, uh, it was one of the leading theories that they were aliens, that they were a species not from Earth that just happened to to land here. And that was that was one thing that always kind of struck me weird is that like that people were they were so odd. That that's the best way that early biologists could kind of. Hmm. make sense of them heads or tails and, and even their even their means of communication it's not audio based it is color changing based and they they do it in such a unique way that it's you know they are very interesting to observe and to learn from and i don't um I think if those guys become the next apex predators, 
yeah, humans, you know, we brought this on ourselves. So, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like everything else. So changing gears a little bit, Mm -hmm. I want, I have kind of, I guess, another topic for you that gets asked us about a lot that we haven't covered really much of. Uh, The Beast of Cherubosco was about the first one we did. But the the giant turtles of the Great Lakes region. Mm. Yes. So just kind of going into that. So Lake Michigan is where the giant turtle, where I have found most of the giant turtle reports. And I don't know what it is about Lake Michigan other than the fact that on the Michigan side, we have a very sandy coast which turtles seem to like. They, mm-hmm. they like that you know ability to, to haul up on the beach, lay their eggs, swim back out, and you know be done with it. But we have at least two giant turtle reports. One is the Stearns Bayou monster, and the other is the Lake Leelanau monster. And each turtle you know, has a unique description. With Stearns Bayou, you're... The, the report says that it is at least as big as most people's, you know, pickup trucks. Um, this is a sizable turtle. Yeah. has the head of a hippopotamus. It's been described as a soft-shelled turtle, hmm. which is very unique and interesting. Yeah. Um, described as being purple with yellow spots. And the one fact that, you know, stands out the most is, this turtle species is bioluminescent. Oh, nah, that's Meaning awesome. It, produced, it glowed from underneath the water. So I know you're a biologist. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of any other turtle species that glows or is bioluminescent? Not that's bioluminescent. Uh, I think leatherback sea turtles have phosphorescence, which is a little different. It's not self-producing light. It's more like um, you ever had those like little glow stars as a yes. kid? So they, they hold light a little extra, but they do go out. I think okay. leatherback sea turtles are the only ones I've ever heard of having anything similar, but not bioluminescence. There's a, you, you, from that story, you can definitely tell that's bioluminescence. That's a, a glow. Right. So no, that's awesome. Hmm. So, you know, so that, that's a very interesting turtle. Um, and if it is, so there's two, two possibilities. It's either a very unique species that grows very big and is is usually a big species, or it's a very old turtle and has, you know, the thing about reptiles and aquatics is as long as they have the space, they will continue to grow. Mm-hmm. They don't have a, like human beings, dogs, horses, cats, they don't have a set dimension that, you know, Sure, they will get, you know, five foot eight or six foot, but we don't expect them to get any bigger. With turtles, reptiles, sharks, whales, it's as long as they have food and they have space, they will continue to grow throughout their whole life. Mm. So it's either a very unique turtle species or it is a very old individual. Now, the Lake Leelanau turtle, that was described as being the length of a rowboat. And the turtle was big enough and strong enough that it actually had tree saplings growing on its back. Hmm. Now, I know snapping turtles and other turtles in the wild like that camouflage. 
They they actually, you know, will burrow under mud and then kind of wedge it up and they will have all kinds of plant matter growing out of that because that is a very good camouflage and hiding technique that allows them to go undetected by foxes, raccoons, humans, um, anything that would want to come and eat them. Um, but they can move around the lakes and swim into different areas. And unless you see them swimming out in the middle of the lake or walking on land, you're, you're like, oh, that's just some, some weeds or, you know, a, a tiny sapling growing up out of the muck. But when you see them on land, you're like, damn, you're <laughs> taking your house with you. Yeah. It's like, wow, you know, uh, you're taking your house and your garden. Um, and so the the Lake Leelanau turtle, um, this would have had to have been a very big turtle because the report says that the young man was tying his, you know, his rowboat up to one of these saplings that was sticking out of the water. And then this huge head rose up out of the water and was looking him in the face. And that's when he was like, nope. <laughs> and, you know, uh, he went one way in the boat and the turtle went the other way. And he was like, I'm never going uh, fishing again because I don't know where that thing is in the water. So those are our two giant turtle reports in the Lake Michigan area. And each one is very fascinating because they're very different mm -hmm. and very, um, uh, unique in their their descriptions. Um, I for one would love to see that um, bioluminescent oh, yeah. turtle, oh, yeah. no matter what size it was, and be like, "Wow, um, they do exist." You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but let's document this for you know everybody that you know this uh, species out there. Now, there's a there's also a third possibility that this was a very large turtle. And because it was swimming up waterways, maybe it went through an industrial waste area that had chemicals in the water that possibly glowed and kind of attached to the, the turtle itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly I know I because I used to um, take in turtles from the, the local nature center because every spring they would have teachers coming in with a classroom pet, mm -hmm. a turtle, tortoise, or something, and oh, here, can you take this? And they'd be like, well, that's an invasive species, but we have someone we can call. And I, <laughs> at one point, I had over 50 turtles and tortoises at my house. Oh, wow. And it just got to, it just got to be way too much. Yeah, it sounds um, like it. <laughs> I mean, it was just, I, I I had to get kiddie pools and put up like mm -hmm. um, uh dog kenneling around it and a top to it so nothing could you know go in and you know you had to have a different uh setup for you know like the the hardback turtles your your painters your map turtles you know those guys can get along fairly well snapping turtles had to have their own musk turtles had yeah. to have their own mm. softshell turtles have to have sand so that they can bury themselves and st so they could stay out of the sun and not get sunburned so it just, and then you had your, your box turtles and your tortoises. And it was like, I'm running out of front yard, you guys, you know. Uh, damn. And, and then, you know, you would get in, like I had a box turtle that came in and they were like, we don't expect it to last very long because the stupid teenagers who brought it in had painted its, its shell with nail polish. We oh. we see that a lot in Hocking Hills Forest. They when I when I used to go to college down there, yeah. the nature center would get them turned in a lot with paint on them. 
And and that just aggravates me. But we certainly know that that paint doesn't wash off for a very long time. And mm-hmm. actually, the shell itself has to peel a bit yeah. before that shit comes off. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm swearing. It's okay. Um, it, <laughs> but that really aggravates me. It does. Uh, yeah, it should. Yeah. People do that. And so it's possible that, you know, the Stearns Bayou Turtle, maybe it did swim through something that would make it glow. Um, like um, uh, they used to paint watches with it. and um, Oh, uranium paint. Uranium paint. Yeah. So maybe it was something of that nature that, you know, um, it was exposed to for a, you know, a brief period of time. And that's how people were noticing it because mm-hmm. if it wasn't glowing in the dark, these things could swim up and down the waterways. Nobody would ever know that they were there. They're very camouflaged. But when, but when it's glowing from under, you know, from under the water, you're like, ah, uh, what is that? Right. So it's possible that either it's ran through an industrial area and got exposed to something like uranium paint, or maybe there was a shipwreck that was carrying something like that and it became exposed to it. And for that period of time, yes, the turtle was glowing in the dark. Now, if the turtle survived that exposure and that stuff wore off with it, you know, going up on the sand or swimming through vegetation, um, you know, maybe that stuff, you know, would get wiped off of it. Then it goes back to being just a normal camouflage turtle. We will never know. <laughs> I, I had another thought for you. I don't know what you think. So what about we? So Bosco back here, my big alligator snapper turtle, he has algae grows on his shell. So in Chicago, when I used to work there, we had some pockets of bioluminescent algae. Oh, okay. So a turtle that big, yeah, living that long, I could definitely see growing a small colony of some bioluminescent algae. Yes, that that is a possibility too. Um, You know that there, you know, is bioluminescent algae or something growing on this shell, and that's what's producing the glow. Um, So, but we do know that the. At least on one occasion, the, it was a female turtle that they observed with the Stearns Bayou because it hauled out on the sand bank and laid an egg and mm. then went back into the water and swam away. So we do know that, you know, at least on one occasion when it was spotted, it, there was a female of the species. So I was going to bring that up. Is it it's it's neat that it, the story has it only laying one egg. So there's kind of a weird phenomenon with turtles and be, excluding island turtles or tortoises specifically like galapagos and you know aldabra tortoises mm-hmm. the bigger they are the less eggs they lay in most cases right. because they're already excluding themselves out of the environment you talked about that egg during the presentation what what was it like almost basketball size right no it was described as a medium-sized pumpkin so to me a medium-sized pumpkin would be something that you can just hug your arms around but would take up your whole lap as you're sitting there. Okay. Right, yeah. I can see that. So this animal, if that is an egg and it hatches, that animal's mostly out of the di- or out of the food chain of the Great Lakes when it hatches immediately. So that baby comes out, and it almost has no predators. Right. So you wouldn't need right. to lay a bunch of babies, unlike other sea turtles, or, or unlike other turtles, like sea turtles are another one that kind of go against that rule. Because they have their babies have to go they come out tiny, so they have to go through so many predators for so long. But if you lay if you're so much bigger at birth, 
Right, yeah. You come out, if you, I mean, think of, that's coming out the medium-sized snapping turtle or a large-sized snapping right. turtle. What's eating that in the Great Lakes? You know, you could, besides a guy. Right, exactly, Tim. Right. So I, I love that. And then there's one giant turtle of Lake Erie I don't know a lot about. I just remember uh, it's the, the Kelly's Island giant turtle. So South Bay Bessie was seen in that area too. Okay. But I, I don't know a lot about it. And it may just be a complete like kind of folklore thing that, you know, somebody on the island made up. But they used to say that there was a giant turtle that would come in the early spring months on the, what was it, the northern shore of Kelly's Island, so facing Canada. And okay. she would hang out there for a couple of days and then she would leave. And that's always one thing that kind of stuck with me. It kind of sounds like maybe she was depositing an egg. Yeah. Possibly, yes. But there's not a lot about it because I think it really got drowned out because of South Bay Bessie stuff. Mm. With like, yeah, because that's what you know Kelly's Island's known for is when the monster came on the island through the ice and stuff like that. So I just I could never find a lot on it, you know, to actually do an episode on for the the podcast. But that's kind of one thing. I don't know. I really like the idea of giant turtles in the Great Lakes. <laughs> and in your presentation, you know, it's certainly. You know, it would be sustainable because, oh yeah, they, you know, there's plenty of fish for them to eat. Mm -hmm. There are sandy coastlines for them to haul up on and lay their eggs. And certainly there, there are water tributaries that they can go into during the winter months and bury themselves and hibernate, just like, you know, any other Michigan Great Lakes yeah. turtle would do. Yeah. So, you know, there's really, we have the perfect habitat for them. And, you know, there's there's plenty of possibility for these guys uh, to be in the Great Lakes. That one, I definitely say that there is every bit, you know, potential for those guys to be here. And then one thing I hear that gets talked about a lot is like, why don't we see these things on the fish finders on sonar and stuff like that? If they're laying against the bottom from a guy that fishes a lot, from a guy that used to be on a boat with a sonar a lot, if it's laying along the bottom, it just looks like the bottom. Mm -hmm. Like when we were doing right. sturgeon surveys, like that's how we'd go over an area and we'd see a chunk of bottom that stuck up and we'd go right back real quick and it wouldn't be there. So like, okay, there's right. a sturgeon in the area. We were in an area, you know, that's what we were looking for. But I could see a, a giant turtle. I, let's say like, um, like the small rowboat size, so 10 to 12 foot. Uh, that just looks like a hump of mud on the bottom. Right. That doesn't look rock. like anything. Just a rock, even. Right, and and you know what people don't realize is, so you know, yes, your boat is going to sit on the surface of the water, but anything that's swimming in the water is faster than your boat. No, mm -hmm. especially if it's of a larger size. So if they, if you know, if they hear your boat coming, they're just going to swim off into a different area. Mm -hmm. And and the thing about it is, it doesn't matter if you're doing a sonar survey like they did in, in Loch Ness. If the species is swimming, they can just avoid you. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, they can go around the boats. They can go, you know, into a different area of the lake. It's not like they have to stay in this one, you know, it's not like an aquarium where they are just stuck in the, like 10-gallon yeah. water. They can go a big circle. Mm -hmm. water. They have the whole lake they can swim in without any you know real barriers and they will just go away from where your ship is and i don't think people unless you've really 
seen a turtle that just out in the wild you know come across one turtles when especially when they're spooked they can scoot oh, they can move they can scoot really oh, fast yeah. underwater people underestimate turtle speed all the time oh yeah because we caught a we caught a big old snapping turtle up when we were fishing in canada i mean it shells you know two or three feet long it was the biggest turtle i'd ever seen and it was up underneath our dock and it was a little floating dock and we could we we're actually able to unclip it and move the dock out of the way so when we swung this out of the way and seen this giant turtle there, we went in to try to net it, and I never seen it, it move so fast. It was just like a black mass just darted across the bottom of the. It was unbelievable, just like a fish just shot away from us. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it, they they are in water. They are very very quick, and you know they could easily escape humans. Mm-hmm. You know, unless they unless they come to the surface and they're basking and sunning themselves. You're, you're, you know, most people wouldn't realize there's turtles in the Great Lakes. Well, there are, you mm-hmm. know, you just don't see them. So mm-hmm. one thing about that is that, like, so species like the American alligator snapping turtle, they don't do that very often. They don't come onto land and bass. Most of the time, adult alligator snapping turtles don't leave the water unless to lay eggs. Right. So you can have a giant animal, and I mean giant, that has no need to come onto land. They just... Right. And, like, I've been in Arkansas on top of some big alligator snapping turtles. Mm-hmm. And on alligators, for that matter. And you don't know they're there. I literally... Well, I, I tell this story on the podcast all the time. Me and my buddy were kicking, like, an eight-foot alligator. And we thought it was a log. And we're, like, three foot of water. till the log took off. <laughs> yeah. And we were waiters and everything. We're like, somebody threw a log on our line. And we're kicking this log, trying to get it off with our feet. And the log wakes up and friggin' takes off. <laughs> but, yeah, giant turtles of the Great Lakes. I love it. I love it. I really think I think that's a lot of our monster sightings for the Great Lakes could be these guys. They have weird profiles. Sometimes they you know extend their neck out of the water. Other times they're that yep. classic hump. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see the shell coming up. I love it. So now I have for you uh, my favorite type of cryptid. Mm. Literally my absolute favorite. Uh, so you have two entries in here that I wanted to ask about. So this is out of Sheetan's book, Lake Monsters and Other cr- Creatures of the Great Lakes. Um, so I've never heard of these two. Well, kind of. So the Ohio River Giant Salamanders and the Selvins Pond Bridge Giant Salamander. Yes. So... Can you? There's not. I couldn't. Of uh, the Selvin's Pond one, I couldn't find much extra. So yeah, those are very old reports. Okay. Um, so the one report, and it's been a been a while since I um, researched that and wrote that particular book. But the one talks about how um, some kids were either fishing or playing along the bank, and a very long salamander came out grabbed one of the boys Mm. and was trying to pull him into a tree the other boys ran and got some adults and they were able to rescue the boy but it was said that it was a very long salamander now this report came from believe the 1800s so what they classified and called you know ordinary town folk called a salamander Mm -hmm as opposed to what we would call a salamander today, there could have been a discrepancy there in what actually had grabbed the kid. Okay. And so 
salamander, you know, we, we think, you know, these, well, for me up here, it's these, you know, cute little black, you know, uh, amphibians with, you know, either yellow or bluish white spots on them. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, the biggest one I've seen was like the length of my hand, um, and, and kind of thick and they're cute and everything. And they usually hide under, you know, logs and, and stuff like that. Um, we've got a swamp across the road from us. So they come up here to, you know, do their dry, you know, uh, hibernation and, you know, totally cute. But in that report, they're talking about a sizable animal that's very long and it, it, you know, makes me question what they were actually interacting with. Mm-hmm. So you don't think maybe big hellbender or anything like that? It, it might, you know, it could have been a big hellbender. Um, but I believe that the, the creature in that report was over 10 feet long. Hmm. Now that's a it's hell of a big hellbender. <laughs> and it was able to, um, like, you know, grab the kid with its legs and run on its hind legs. So to me, this is <laughs> something totally different. And might have just been a, it might have been part of the fossil record. Um, and this would might have been like the last one. I think they do end up killing the creature in, in the account. Um, but that's a very sizable, you know, lizard or salamander. Again, you know, with the report being a couple hundred years old, our classifications for things in modern day Changed dramatically. are different from, you know, what they classified them as, right. you know, back then. So it could have been really anything that, you know, was reptilian or amphibious, but they called it a salamander. So that's, you know, how I put it in the book. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, I get it. It sounds like the Crosswick monster, uh, story yeah it does actually it sounds really similar it sounds very similar to the crosswick monster attacking the kid dragging him up a tree yeah and being in water and yeah oh wow that is another weird one there's a lot of weird coincidences in it, or, or whatever you want to call it uh mm. similarities in a Synchronic- lot of these stories synchronicities but yeah so that's one of my big obsessions is uh well, i'm a salamander guy uh there's i have a whole bunch of species of salamander and newt i keep as pets uh, oh, cool. So me and Emily were, me and my wife were one of four people that have actually bred fire salamanders in the U.S. Oh, uh, cool. So we take salamander stuff very seriously. Uh, but like one of my favorite cryptids is like the Tranny's Alps giant salamander. But we just did an episode, so that'll come out before this one, with the giant, the, a cryptid created by science. Ooh. So in Europe, uh, this episode's called the European Giant Salamander. Uh, so there's this band of Andreas salamanders. So your giant Japanese, giant Chinese, uh, hellbenders. Yes. So there should be a band of them across the world. The only place they're missing, at least from, at least in the fossil record or still alive today, is Europe. And we kind of go into that. That mm-hmm. science says, "Hey, this creature should exist. Why aren't anybody? T- why isn't anybody talking about? It? We were they were expecting to hear folk stories and stuff. They couldn't find it. They actually went through." In found remains, uh, I believe that they weren't fossilized, right? We actually found yeah, still actual actual remains, remains yeah, of a juvenile that was three and a half feet in a oh, wow. in a in a, a larva. So they were alive within the last two thousand years. 
So wow. then they started looking at stuff like the Lindenworm, uh, maybe being a monster, a monsterized version of these giant salamanders that Europe used to have. Ooh. So it's one of these cryptids. It's, I love it because it's a cryptid that nice. nobody talked about. And that science is like, hey, this should exist. It should. They went through and they looked and they actually found it. But that's one of my, I love the giant salamanders. And, and also, you know, in European um, history and folklore, you know, this is where we see the reports of the dragons. So mm-hmm. what, you know, what better representation of a dragon than, you know, a, a 10 foot, you know, salamander that probably was easily, you know, killed mm-hmm. and suddenly that becomes your claim to fame. Right. Yeah. I can see that. You know, look He's at, slain look a dragon. dragon and, you know, you know that with, within populations, there's only so many of them that, you know, you can take out before the, the species in an area will go totally extinct. Yes, yeah. Especially salamanders. They're, they're highly susceptible to that. Uh, yeah. I was, um, here at, here at the Detroit zoo and down in the Toledo zoo, they have the giant Japanese salamander. They have the Chinese mm-hmm. and then they also have the hellbender. And those are always like, I'm like, I'm going to the salamanders. Yeah. I'm going to the amphibians. And sometimes they're on display. Sometimes they're not. They, 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 when I was there in June at the Detroit one, um, they had dinosaurs on display, but they didn't have the, the salamander. <laughs> so I was kind of disappointed, but, um, I'm always like, uh, you know, oh, it's the Kappa, you know, the, you know, they're so, yeah. they're Kappa. so it is funny how like in this field, in the crypto field, we've discovered in the past year or so, so many people are salamander and fish people. Oh yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like I, I say it like, you know, it's kind of a joke, but almost I, how many per- percentage of people like that really like this stuff? have been salamander or fish, you know, biology backgrounds. Oh, Sparky runs Ohio Bigfoot. Uh, Renee from Finding Bigfoot. Sorry. Yeah. And and I think it's because, so for for some people, it it goes back to that child fascination of dinosaurs. And we were always told growing up as children that dinosaurs were reptiles. And now we know that, yeah, Sometimes, but mostly they they were related to avian. But seeing reptiles, that takes us, you know, back to that childhood memory of dinosaurs, and it's you know that fascination that's there. And I think that's why so many people, um, some people are really into reptiles and amphibians and fish. Some people are scared to death of them. I find them fascinating, and I always mm-hmm. want to. Oh, yeah. Look at them, see them, you know. Um, that's, you know, if we go to a zoo, that's the first places that I go is the reptile, you know, building, the amphibian building, and the aquarium. And it's like, I'll, I'll look at the cute and cuddly stuff later, but I want to see, you know, I want to see my reptiles. Right. I like my slime and my scales. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, this house is full of snakes, tortoises, lizards, salamanders, newts, uh, turtles, and a lot of fish. So I yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, Shitan, I want to thank you for your time. This has been great. This has been a fun conversation. Oh, you're welcome. We're definitely have to have you back on soon for another topic because you have a lot. We just kind of covered one of your 
Fortes today. Just one little <laughs> one sliver yeah. of one part of what you do. Yes. So we'd love to have you back on. Uh, and we definitely will if you're okay with that. If we didn't scare you off. Oh, sure. I would, I would <laughs> love to come back on your show. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Well, I, always love, I always love talking cryptids with, with uh, and, and dinosaurs and everything else, you know, with uh, anybody who wants to, to engage in the conversation. So I'm always up for, you know, uh, coming back on the show and, and talking more. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you again. We're going to sign off here. And then we'll we'll have a conversation off air real quick. All right, you okay. ready, Jay? I think so. I have been the great and powerful Mister E, and I've been Jay. And today we've been do- joined by Sheetan. You want to tell them where they can find all your stuff real quick? So you can find my books and publications on Amazon. Um, the books you can find under Shatan Noir S H E T A N N O I R. And the magazines you can find on Amazon, if you type in Squatch GQ Magazine, it will bring up all of the current magazines that I have available. Oh, um, nice. You can find me and the magazines. Also, um, you can find our pages on Facebook. And that's pretty much the only social media that I promote on. Um, so Facebook and Amazon, you'll find us. Awesome. And I'll put all those links below too. So they, those links will be in the description below this episode, just so everybody at home, make it easier for everybody. All right, guys, until next week, we've encrypted the corn. You've been listening to cryptids of the corn. Be sure to join us in the next episode where we tantalize your intellect and expand the horizons of your mind. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Until then, stay magical.